Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Deb Maisner, registered nurse, health coach, and alcohol-free badass. And I have an old friend back from Moscow, Idaho days on the show today. I'm super excited to have her on. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Deb. Or can I call you Debbie? (laughs) Oh, you can call me either one. (laughs) Nice. I always remember you as Debbie. I know I've I've gotten <laughs> lazy and really lazy and shortened it to Deb, but not nice. really. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But welcome, Wendy. Why don't you tell the people who are not from Moscow uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm so excited and honored to be on your podcast. And so I just want to say thank you for having me. And yeah, I am from good old Moscow, Idaho, in northern Idaho, um, pretty close to the Washington border. And I was a grade, two grades lower than you. So Mm -hmm. when I was a sophomore, you were a senior. So you were always revered in my mind as like super cool. And um, after I graduated from high school, I went to the University of Idaho in Moscow. And Um, Then I moved out to the Twin Cities where I lived for about 20 years, and now I'm back on the West Coast. I'm currently in Northern California, so I teach violin online. I've been teaching violin since college, and so, but I currently teach online, which is something that started during the pandemic, and it works really well for a lot of families, so I'm just, that's kind of what I'm doing down here in California. Mm, I love it. I'm yeah. Well, I think that's so sweet of you to say those nice things about me because I always admired you and your musical ability and just how cool you were. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that's very sweet. I did. Yeah, I played violin um, in since I was five, yeah. so it was always really normal to me, and. I do remember one time I, when I showed up for orchestra in seventh grade at Moscow Junior High School, um, they said, you're going to play cello. And I said, well, no, I'm a violinist. I've been playing since I was five years old. And they were like, no, we're going to play cello. And so I quit and switched to choir instead. Oh, so, I, that, yeah. yeah, I cannot think of you not being a musician. Yeah. I'm happy just, that you're still doing that. Yeah. I think it's just like something that's part of your identity and, and um, it's, it plays a really important role in my life, but something like anything that you do that you've done since you were really little, you have to do some examination every once in a while mm-hmm. to make sure it's fitting into your life correctly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's get into your experience with drinking. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about what what that was like for you. Well, alcohol, I feel like I've had sort of an unusual relationship in the beginning. It all kinds of it all kind of ends up the same in in that, you know, we have such similar and overlapping experiences. But one thing that was a little different for me was that I did not drink in high school, Mm -hmm. that I sort of considered alcohol to be um, dangerous 
and a little scary and um, I was nervous about it. And so I maybe had a drink once in a while, but I was very, very, very straight laced in terms of alcohol, not necessarily in terms of other things, but um, we can talk about that later. But anyway, so I didn't, um, you know, I didn't drink much until I turned 21. And I remember for my 21st birthday, um, well, you and I had quite a few friends in common mm-hmm. um, in high, going to the same high school. And so when I turned 21, my friends who were in your grade took me out for my 21st birthday. And I'd been a little bit drinking in college here and there, not just not very much. It wasn't a very big deal. And um, but we were, they decided that I was going to have 21 drinks. Oh, Do you God. remember that tradition? Oh, <laughs> can you, I mean, so it's something little. I cannot even imagine today, but yeah. that was just the thing. And so, I mean, I think I got up to 18. If you can believe it, I spaced it out throughout the whole night and, um, I did not get very sick. I was I was very tired and a little bit sick the next day, but I was very lucky because that could have been a very um, unfortunate um, outcome. That was not very safe. So, but anyway, that tradition of like of the twenty one drinks was so normalized. And I remember on a podcast that you had a few. Um, months ago, you talked about how normal, normalized drinking was in um, in our hometown and at the University of Idaho. And oh my so, gosh! Yeah. So that the fact that you didn't drink during high school, well, I didn't know really a lot of people that didn't drink during high school. Do you feel mm-hmm. like you that was pretty rare? I think it was, but I also. Um, I mean, I had some very close friends and they didn't drink. I Mm -hmm. think that probably was, was how it played out. And I I did notice that drinking seems, seemed to cause a lot of issues and drama for people. And so I just was very, I mean, some, once I make my mind up about something, I really like will stick to it, but sometimes it takes a long time to get to that point. But but that was just kind of where I was in high school. I think my parents had an influence on me mm-hmm. and they, they were not very, they were not strict about drinking. I feel like they modeled um, responsible drinking growing up. And so it just kind of, maybe it was more of a European style approach where it just didn't feel like that big of a deal to me. I didn't need to do it to rebel mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do it because it's, I'd seen how it was dangerous for other people and, you know, and I definitely partook in some marijuana Mm -hmm. consumption. (laughs) I think that was kind of more my thing in high school. So, yeah. Yeah. So college, you kind of experimented, you turned 21, big tradition. You're right. Like, oh my God, that's such a drinking town in college. And then what happened? Well, you know, I, I started working at that restaurant. I don't know if you remember the Red Door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
Yeah, and and this is something I didn't realize at the time, but there's um, in in the serving world, you know, in restaurant culture, there's a lot of drinking. Like drinking is just part of the culture. And so you always wrap up your night with drinks and then go out for drinks afterwards. So I think my drinking slowly ramped up, you know, and in, in after turning 21 and then being able to hang out at the bar with my old high school friends who, who with it, you know, beforehand were, I was too young to go to the bar. So now I had kind of my old group of friends back and we were hanging out and, and I was working at this restaurant and, you know, I didn't really noticed that there was a problem because it just seems so normal. But I do remember this one time where um, we were wrapping up things at the restaurant and somebody came in at the very end and he wanted to wine taste. He seemed like a wealthy person, put a bunch of cash on the table. And so he was offering wine, just opening up bottles of wine and offering them to all the servers who were finished with work. And so I drank just so much red wine. I, I don't even know. And the next day I had to go teach a lesson mm. and I went to this family's house. They were such a sweet family in Pullman, Washington. Um, and I ended up throwing up in the bathroom and it was red wine throw up and it was all over. It was so humiliating. Oh my goodness. I just, that was kind of the first indication to me that at the time I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I thought, oh, I must have just had too much wine or I didn't have enough to eat. I wasn't really aware of the fact that, no, this isn't normal. Um, this is somewhat problematic and um, and also incredibly humiliating. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I think when I moved, so I moved to Wisconsin, my parents moved out uh, to the Midwest and, um, and I followed with my then partner and your friend, John, Mm -hmm. and we, um, we settled outside the twin cities, Minnesota, in this little town in Hudson, Wisconsin. And I don't know if you've ever been to Wisconsin, but the drinking culture there is 10 times what I, it is in Moscow, I Idaho. Heard, <laughs> I have heard they have like the highest per capita rate of drinkers or they hold some records, some drinking records. Yeah, it's in, it's insane. They allow, you can drink in a bar or a restaurant at any age as long no. as you are with a parent or your spouse. Really? And you just sign this little form or often it's just the bartender just asks you and you say, yeah, this is my, my parent and you can drink. I thought that was so interesting. Wow. And then also there was a huge culture for drinking in the morning, which was sort of new to me, even in Moscow, Idaho, even at university of Idaho, I never, ever drank like in the morning that felt pretty kind of like the in high school that felt like ooh that's that doesn't seem right to me so but then in Wisconsin that was a very much that was just a normal thing and you would get bloody marys or you know um mimosas in the morning and or just wake up with beer even i just wow. i it was so weird at first and then you just kind of 
when in Rome, just start sort of participating. And I feel like alcohol just sort of became more and more of a main of main star in our family gatherings and in our pastimes. And, you know, when we went out to eat, we would, instead of coming home, we would go out to the bars afterwards. And it just slowly ramped up like that. And then when I started playing more and more gigs, violin gigs in the cities, um, you would get paid with alcohol. Oh. Right. And so it, yeah. So, you know, $50 plus three drink tickets or something like that. And you, of course, felt like, oh, well, I don't want to waste my oh. drink tickets. <laughs> so then I would be drinking on, you know, not on the weekends, on the week on weekdays and drinking more, much more than normal because there were sort of these external factors at play. And then just it continued to just ramp up and ramp up to the point in my 30s where I just felt like I was drinking to to normalize to feel okay but it wasn't fun anymore it was just it was a necessary evil it was kind of like and, you know, a relationship gone bad, but you feel like you can't break up because you're too entrenched. And, um, yeah, so I don't know how, um, what was your experience with, with alcohol in, in terms of different parts of the, you know, of the state where you've lived or different towns that you've lived in? Have they been has that affected your drinking? Well, that's interesting. I was just thinking like, wow, you've really been influenced by the environment you're in, whether yes. it's your work environment or the city you're in, the state that you're in, the, yeah, interesting. Well, I, Wendy, haven't gone that far from Idaho, <laughs> so <laughs> I spent a little time in Washington, and then I moved to Boise, Idaho, uh, so kind of the same. I would say, because I have, I had kids, um, that is what kind of shifted my drinking more than the outside environment, so my drinking became more about being home alone with children and, and right. being more of a coping mechanism and less about being out and socializing with drinking and other drinkers, except for other wines, you know, or wines, moms. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I know what you mean. Ah, that's so funny. But yeah, yes. so, so the, I was thinking that was interesting with your story and how it seeped into your family and, um, became highlighted to my parents. Actually, I started drinking more with my parents, though, as I got older, yes. uh, especially my dad. Um, that is one of the things I miss now is just like happy hour with my dad because he's still happy hour every day. McCleary's pub. <laughs> wow. I'm totally I totally hear that. I felt like drinking with my parents was allowed for a whole new level of relationship yeah. where that, that just seemed to open up. And I felt like it, you know, we had so much fun 
And, you know, you have those in the beginning before drinking starts to get out of control. You do have these incredible, like almost transcendent moments of, of togetherness. And you're like, this is amazing. And I love my family so much. And we're so close and we have so much fun together. And it just, and we drink, we, we drink pretty responsibly. It just, it was always some kind of rationalization um, around it. And, you know, and definitely when I stopped that, that felt like a huge loss for me, mm. that relationship yeah. with my parents. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the drinking, one of the things that I started to notice with my drinking as it was um, getting out of control. And this is something I, I identify as an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I know that word doesn't ring true for everybody. You know, so I think people should be very careful about what words they use if they feel like they want to identify as an alcoholic or an addict or somewhere on the alcohol use disorder spectrum or a problem drinker or whatever, whatever terms you want to use. I think that's really important. So I identify as an alcoholic because that really works for me. Um, Maybe it's the teacher in me. I like, you know, very clear distinctions. And so as an alcoholic, I, you know, I'm looking back, I noticed there were some patterns in my drinking. One was that instead of thinking, so every time I would get sick or have like, you know, wake up hungover and have to miss something because I was hungover, I would, I'd make a new rule for myself mm-hmm. be like, okay, I, so after that, incident in at the restaurant I said I don't drink red wine anymore so that was my new rule and then 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 there was an incident that happened and I was like okay I don't drink beer I don't drink pints of beer anymore like so I cut out beer and then there was another few instances and I said okay I don't drink mixed drinks anymore because I want to know how much alcohol is hitting me at any point so I would like I was like, okay, I only drink alcohol straight on the rocks, Ooh, right? Yeah. Right? So I was very, I had all these rules. And then I would even do things like I would set timers and I'd try to drink water in between drinks. I'd try to keep track of how many drinks I'd had. Like one, I used to put rubber bands on my wrist. And every time I had a drink, I'd move it over to the other side just to remind myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, the rules we do. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's the, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous calls it an obsession of the mind and an allergy of the body, mm. an allergy of the body, meaning that for people who struggle with alcohol use disorder, one is, you know, never enough. Mm-hmm. Two drinks is never enough. You just want more. And so it's just this feeling of like, I will, I will drink more regardless of the consequences and then the obsession of the mind is I, it's like, you know, that you want to drink. And I knew that there was a part of me that knew I should quit, but I, I, I did not want to quit. So instead of quitting, I would try to manage it with all these rules. And I was obsessive about it. And anytime the rules failed, I would make up some rationalization 
Like if I did end up getting sick, even though I stuck to my rule, I'd say, oh, I'm, I must have food poisoning or maybe I um, took too much ibuprofen or mm-hmm. something. So I, I never blamed the drinking, which is just so funny. You just get into this land of magical, irrational thinking that keeps you on the path of more and more use. And it just got worse and worse to the point where I ended up in a relationship after my marriage ended. My marriage didn't end because of alcohol, but we had, we both kind of became drinking buddies and, you know, so I don't, I think the alcohol didn't help. Um, But then when I got out of the marriage, I ended up in a relationship with a really bad alcoholic And that lasted for four years. And it was, that felt like, in retrospect, a way for me to continue drinking and rationalizing it because there was somebody in my life who was much worse than me. Mm, Yeah. So I didn't feel so bad. I felt like, wow, I actually have my drinking under control. And I also have a drinking buddy. And my disease, my alcoholism has a an environment where it can really thrive. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said before about the environment, you know, there are, I think that, you know, I, I wasn't one of those drinkers who drank the first time drinking. I, I got blackout drunk, you know, for me, it really slowly ramped up over time. And so I had some prerequisites, I think, to become an alcoholic, but it was definitely, you know, just the environment and the continued use over time that led to me to where I was. So, and then in my mid or late thirties, I think is when I started feeling like it was getting out of control. And I, um, you know, I was driving tipsy or drunk. I was drunk driving. Mm-hmm. I was, I was being pretty reckless and I just wasn't, you know, I I wasn't drinking like first thing in the morning. Um, you know, I do that occasionally, but that wasn't a, um, it wasn't the daily drinking for me. It was just more periodic binge drinking and I would take several days off at a time and then I would ramp back up. And then I would drink for like four or five days straight. And then I'd have a terrible few days off and then come kind of come back to it. So it was like this, it wasn't like a dailiness of addiction. It was more like addiction to the pattern, I think. And that's such an important point. It doesn't have to be daily to be a problem. And absolutely. And I think also... You can have plenty of instances where you drink like a normal person Mm -hmm. because I could definitely keep it together sometimes. And um, I think that is that was what was really confusing for me because I I just didn't identify as an alcoholic. I thought, oh, I just sometimes I drink too much and it's for other reasons, you know, and I think, you know, whatever alcohol wherever you are on the alcohol use spectrum, you know, it can look like many different things. 
But the main thing I learned is an addiction is something where you continue to do it despite the negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And despite saying, I'm not going to do this, and then you continue to do it and you have and you do have the negative consequences. So that was what was happening for me with alcohol. And so, you know, basically starting in, you know, early 20s and going into my mid 30s, where I was starting to feel really out of control, like drinking was not fun anymore. It it took a lot for to feel inebriated and and it never it didn't feel good anymore Mm -hmm. it always felt kind of like I was loopy or slurring my words or tired or getting kind of sick and I was waking up with sore throats all the time and I always thought I had strep throat but you know there were it was just some kind of virus or irritation from drinking and I was driving drunk and just kind of that and doing this out of control party behavior and Um, It was August 2017 when an old friend came into town. His name is Django. And we um, had knew each other. We'd known each other in the mid-2000s. Our paths had crossed when he lived in the Twin Cities. And so he came back into town and looked me up and was like, hey, you want to grab coffee? And so we... We ended up talking, and he told me um, uh, some stories about how he quit drinking, how his brother, who I also knew, um, had almost died from drinking, and about another close friend who had killed somebody in a DUI accident. Mm. And I sat there listening to this, and I felt like a flash of light just hit me, Mm. and I pictured myself driving drunk, and I knew... I said, oh, my goodness, like, I I have to be done. I have to quit alcohol. I can't have another drink. And I just looked at him and I said, you know, thank you for sharing that. I I think I'm done with alcohol. And I think he kind of rolled his eyes a little bit, like, yeah, you know, you'll, whatever, you do you. <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, that, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so... But then what ended up happening is that he and I started talking and and over time we he lived in Portland and I lived in the Twin Cities. So over time we developed kind of a long distance relationship and um, me being newly sober. It was kind of complicated because you're not really supposed to be in a relationship when you're newly sober, but it actually kind of worked out because we were long distance. So we had to, you know, we, we, I, I got to do some work on my own, you know, being alone in the twin cities. And so, but we're still together Aww. and yeah. So it's, um, it's a great story, love story of like that started with sobriety and it is now, now I have uh, four and a half years, and he's coming up on uh, seven, I think. Wow. So it's very exciting. That's so yeah. Well, congratulations on your Thank sobriety you. and your relationship. You. Yeah. So what, what was helpful for you then to get sober? How did you do that? Oh, it's a great question. 
And I just want to remind listeners that it's really different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, but if you, for me, I, I was resistant to, to any kind of program just because I didn't understand what, what exactly it was. You know, I thought AA was a bunch of old men, you know, sitting in a church basement and coming out to, to smoke. Right. I didn't Mm -hmm. realize that there were like women's groups and all kinds of different, you know, different AA groups that you could join and choose from. And each one has a different vibe and a different rhythm and a different energy. So um, a few months into my sobriety, I ended up going to, I was feeling kind of desperate because, so like I said before, I didn't even think that I, I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I just knew I had a problem with drinking and I wanted to stop, but I didn't know how. So once I had the flash of realization, like, and like I said before, like, once I kind of make a decision, I tend to stick to it. But those decisions come very, you know, they're very few and they they come they come after a long time of of building to them. So I decided to quit and that was it for me. But I felt like I wasn't functioning as well as I could. So I decided to go to an AA meeting and it was life changing. I had such a positive experience. I think I was very Good. lucky to Good. to find a really great group of women. And then, you know, I so I continued to go to meetings. And honestly, I don't work the steps as much as you know. I I've done steps one through three. For those of you who don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's um, 12 steps. And I think, so I'm kind of doing things my own way. Um, it's, it's, that sounds for those that don't know, Wendy, that sounds yeah. so Wendy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, right. I just kind of feel like I'm working my own version of my steps. Yeah. And as long as I'm so sober and as long as I'm, you know, working on my recovery, I feel like I'm on the right path. So I, so about a year into my sobriety, I actually went to a treatment facility. I did what's called a renewal where you can go as a sober person and be with other people who are working on quitting drinking. And so I did that for two weeks and then I've just done a lot of, um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, um, a lot of counseling, a lot of alcohol podcasts like this one and other other ones and listening to other people's stories. And now you can go to an online AA meeting like any time of the day. It's pretty amazing. That's one of the gifts of the pandemic. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, I think, I think with recovery i mean it's just such a process and it's um you have to go on, you have to kind of go on your own path and if you don't know how to set your own path there's one, lots of wonderful paths to choose you can try the 90 meetings in in 90 days you can get a sponsor work the steps you could go to treatment if you think you need to um i just think it's important to realize that there are lots of different ways 
to to be sober or to work on limiting your alcohol use. And so my story is just one example of of how to do it. Um, but I think the big thing is having your people on board. So right now, almost everybody in my life is um, sober or not drinking. Wow. And I think that's a pretty big, I know that, that, uh, that, um, that's very unique and that has afforded me, um, uh, much more ease in, in my recovery. So I'm very, I have a huge gift in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so it sounds like you had a lot of thought and angst leading up to that decision, that kind of divine meeting between you and Django. Did I say his name mm-hmm. right? Yes, Django. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, that that was just so like divine intervention for you and for him to say those words, which at the time it's, he didn't realize how impactful they would be. And right. from that moment, you were you were like, I'm done. Yes. Yeah, and that's a unicorn. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But you know what? I, I, I call that a unicorn, but the more and more people I talk to, like I have talked to a handful of, of people that that's what happened. Um, But after a long series of starts and stops and rules and whatnot, so. Exactly. I mean, we all, I guess, are have the potential to become unicorns. Yes, totally. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, it's go an ahead. interesting, yeah, it's just so interesting, I think, that you know when you know, mm-hmm. and when it's time, you'll know whether it, I heard an interesting quote, though, that that's when you realize something's a problem, it's probably been a problem for much longer. Yeah then you realize. So, but once you get to that breaking point and for some, they call it a bottom. I was so lucky. Excuse me. I was so lucky that my, that I didn't reach my bottom, but I certainly could have reached a a bottom the next weekend if I had continued drinking the way I was. And, you know, they say you, the, the average person drives drunk like 120 times before they get they before they either get pulled over or um, something happens. Now I could be wrong on that statistic, but it's something like way more than what you would think, <laughs> right? And so if you think about the not being um, the people who have DUIs, I was so lucky to never get one. How many times it takes before you actually get caught? And for me, it was. I was doing this on a regular basis because I was playing gigs. Yeah. Drinking at gigs and coming home, Mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, I had to get home. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Moscow, Idaho, drink. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I remember giving people rides home and not remembering where they lived or that I gave them a ride. I mean, just so bad. Yeah. So bad. So and then in, in Moscow, it was, it was even more dangerous because of those two-lane divided highways, oh the windy gosh. highways. Yes. I know. Yeah. 
And so, I mean, I, I knew several people who had died in a drunk driving accident on those terrible highways. So it was, um, yeah. And I think, I think the, the, that kind of irrational thinking, that rationalization, once you stop drinking and can examine your life from a new angle, you'll start realizing <clears throat> all the rationalizations you're mm-hmm. making yeah. for your drinking. And I've heard you say, for you, you know, being a mom and the stress of being a mom. And, and then for me, it was like, well, I deserve this. I deserve a drink after I play a gig or, you know, this is a family thing or this is how I'm connecting with people or I'm just, you know, a rock star or something, you know, some deluded um, rationalization. And when I peeled all those back, I realized, oh, my gosh, I do have a problem with drinking. And I can comfortably, you know, identify as an alcoholic in recovery now. And but quitting, I'd say just the stopping was probably the easiest part of all of it. Mm -hmm. And the hard part has been working through whatever I need to work through to manage the different stressors in my life and to manage the different triggers for drinking. Mm -hmm. And so that's where your community comes into play. And whether that's AA or, um, you know, alcohol tipping point community or whatever community you're a part of, you're going to need support. Because, you know, a lot of people drink to feel more connected. And if you lose that connection, you need to find it in some other area. Yeah, 100%. What would you say are your other top tips for anyone looking to change their relationship with alcohol? I think it's so important to understand what your brain and your what's happening in your brain and what's happening chemically. Mm-hmm. Because when you drink, you get this influx of, you know, of dopamine and then your body produces a chemical to try to balance that out. So that's the, it's a depressing chemical to try to balance out this, you know, the too much dopamine because your body wants to be in homeostasis at all times. And so when you have times, one thing I realized when I had stopped drinking was that I would For example, at a certain time of day, I would get this really sinking feeling and I couldn't understand what it was. I just felt like kind of listless and like the world doesn't make sense and life is sort of meaningless and all, you know, sort of existential dread. And I realized that was just a trigger because my body was like, oh, we're preparing for that time, that chemical you put in our body that gives us too much dopamine so we're going to put this we're going to like preempt it with a depressing chemical and so once you kind of know those chemical patterns and you can look for them then you can I, I would work to just to disassociate or to try not to become enmeshed with the feeling to say oh there's that feeling that's that chemical feeling, you know, that's my brain telling me, you know, 
it's ready for a drink. And so I would, instead of processing it as sadness, I would just process it, try to process it as a, a chemical and to be kind of objective and removed from it. And so that really, really, really helps. It's not easy, but just to be, to separate yourself from what you're feeling and try to understand yeah. it in terms of the physiology of the brain. And yeah, I don't know if have you ever, I think, have you ever read uh, Quit Like a Woman? Yeah. Yes. Holly Whitaker. I think, yes. That's a, I actually have not read that book, but I've heard so many great things about it and I've heard it quoted so many times, but that's like next on my, on my list. Um, but I, you know, reading about the disease is really interesting to me. Um, and reading, you know, kind of approaching it with a science mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps you get out of your own head. And then, you know, seeking help when I need it, I think that's one of the hardest things because alcoholism is very isolating. And so when I feel down, I naturally will try to isolate instead of reaching out. So I have to have things in place ahead of time to kind of circumvent those, those kinds of um, uh, experiences where I might be getting down. So as long as I have like people I can call or regular check-ins and, and, you know, just reaching out to people and then, and then talking to people about the disease and, and um, like talking to you or, um, I've had friends reach out to me sort of un unofficially and that's given me a lot of strength is to kind of be there for other people. And that's the service part of AA, which, you know, I don't officially sponsor anybody because again, I'm sort of on my own little weird path, but I definitely <laughs> unofficially <laughs> am, um, you know, there for my friends who, when they have issues, they definitely reach out and a lot of them have gotten sober. And so it's, um, and it's very inspiring to be able to help other people on their journey. Yeah. It's, it's so great. It's like you, you got out on the other side and you just want to be like, let me help you. You, you don't have to feel this way. You're not hopeless. You can change. Exactly. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. And, and I think just staying, um, you staying one step ahead. Mm -hmm. So you can't be complacent. You know, it's been for me, it's been four and a half years, but I still have to, you know, pinch myself and be like, you know, you're, you had over 20 years of drinking patterns and habits and you're still a baby. <laughs> like you're still just <laughs> four years, four and a half years old. And so I, I have to, if I get complacent, my brain will start playing tricks on me and try to get me to drink. It's like, um, like I'll create drama and my, you know, artificially like I'll try to start something with my partner or I won't get enough rest you know I won't take care of myself mm -hmm. and then kind of get myself into like a little tizzy and then realize oh this is just pattern behavior that's 
trying to get me to start to rationalize drinking again. Mm -hmm. And so you have to just remind yourself, you know, no matter how far down the road you've gone, you're still the same distance from the ditch. (laughs) Ooh, good analogy. Yes, I heard that when I was in treatment, and I love that. (laughs) Wait, no matter how far down the road you've gone, you're still the same distance from the ditch? Yes. Oh, that's good. Well, what are your plans? What are your plans for the future, West Coast? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, um, well, I'm really interested in my partner and I, Django and I are interested in starting some kind of center um, where musicians can come and play and stay like a music camp, music camp for adults. (laughs) Even better. Yes. And so this got sort of thwarted during the, um, of course, during the pandemic. So our plans have been put on hold, but we're still hoping to find a center, a place to set up shop and have like a music camp. And that will also have an, um, a sobriety element to it. Mm. So like musicians who want to come and work on their recovery or a sober place for musicians to, you know, take a break from alcohol or to examine their own drinking. And so, um, of course it'll be music first, but have a, cause we're both musicians and we're both passionate about, about playing and studying and learning and teaching music but having also a, a recovery element to oh, it. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, let me yeah. know if I can support you in any way. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And yeah, and I I think um, I still go back to Minnesota and I still um, check in with family and friends and I still have some students in Minnesota and I so I, I'm enjoying teaching and uh, playing music when I can. It's sort of coming back after this hiatus. You know, live music is starting to come back. And it's, you know, it's just such a gift now to be able to experience life without alcohol, without this chemical that's constantly, you know, overturning your life and, and up upending your plans and making things more difficult, you know, and putting, you know, was putting me in danger and putting other people in danger. So I'm just so grateful to, you know, to Django for helping me get sober and for inspiring me in that first conversation. But then, you know, also to Alcoholics Anonymous for, I mean, it's just, it's such a great institution. Good. And yeah. I'm so glad. I mean, it's really getting a bad rap and it's saved a lot of people's lives. And you're right. It's not for everybody. Um, But maybe, I mean, if you don't know, maybe try it, right? Absolutely. And if you don't like a meeting, go to a different meeting. It's, there's so many different meetings and so many different ways to participate. And nobody has ever pressured me to do the steps. I mean, and I don't even really have a sponsor because <laughs> I just, 
I just like to do things kind of my own way, like you said. But um, you can still go to meetings and have a wonderful experience um, relating to other people and then also sharing your own experience, which could help other people get or stay sober. And that's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your experience on this show. I really appreciate reconnecting with you. And I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation. So thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for starting this organization and for having the podcast. And it was it was just lovely to talk to you. Thanks for letting me share. We'll, We'll be in touch. Sounds good. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys. So please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.